right, it's Ephesians chapter 4 that we're in. Good evening, Hope. There we go. Uh, do I have a sweat rag? It's hot up here. I do not. Anthony, can you grab me a tea towel or a wet wipe or an Ajax or a, a face vacuum, something like that? I feel like it's going to heat up tonight. We're in Ephesians 4 and, and we're at that pivotal point of the, of the epistle where, where Paul has gone from speaking so much, so richly, so deeply, so powerfully of the gospel call that we sinners have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, mate. Bang. We've received this call of the gospel that, is, that, that goes back to eternity. We remember chapter 1 when he says this. We were, we were predestined, from, predestined from eternity to something glorious and eternal future. We have been given a, a wonderful redemption, redemption in the blood of Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit. All of these tremendously powerful things that come together to, to create what we have been calling our Trinitarian salvation the working of the Father and the Son in the, in the, with, with the, the work of the Holy Spirit that the Father chose us. The Son came down and bled for us and purchased us. And now the Spirit has come down to apply that salvation. And it's in chapter 4 and onwards that he starts saying, now, now local church, Ephesian church, let me see that. Let me see something that in your life and something, something about your church. And let me see the, the community of faith so live so that what I've been saying, that the, the church is the eternal person purpose of God in Christ in the world, and that, and that the church is this new covenant phase of temple where God dwells in the world in your midst. Make that make sense. Live in such a way. And, and last week he said that the first way we need to go about our own behavior and, and uh, uh, interactions with another to make sure that we're showing or putting that all on display is that we live in unity, that our, our engagement with one another and our common belief and our common confession is one of of unity. We see that come up again in today's passage, which is primarily about the mission of the church. And then thirdly, next week, uh, we're going to look at how the, 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 the church ought to walk in a holy and pure way, and that's how we make it all make sense in our, in our life. But look at chapter 4 and verse 7 as we read from there and onwards. This is the word of the one true living God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, our call to worship tonight. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind and wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless this true word in our midst this evening. 
The big question of today's passage is, what is the mission of the church? What is it that the church is meant to be doing? But even before we start answering that, I want to say that's actually the wrong question. Bad you. You know, wrong question. You've, you've, you've asked already the, the wrong question as we come to this passage and start saying it. And there's debates and there's controversies and there's discussions all over the place as theologians try and ask, what's the mission of the church in the world? But, but instead of asking that particular precise question, I, I would rather uh, ask it from a more, what I think to be Paul's perspective here. Our question should not primarily be what is our job, What's our ministry? What's our mission as the church? It should primarily be, what is Christ's current ministry? What is Christ's mission? Because that is what the church's mission is. It would be a mistake for us to think that at this point, we've, we've put a hold on the theology of what Christ has done. It is true, amen, that Jesus' work is a finished work. His, sal- his salvation, His forgiving, His justifying work does not need to be added to one single iota, dot, or ounce. Amen. Amen. However, it would be an error to then, to then say and assume from that that as we come out of chapters 1 through 3, the theology-dense gospel passages, that what we are now doing is we're moving on from Christ's ministry to the church's ministry. I've said every week, let's not try and think of Christ over here and church over here as, as so separated, though distinct, they're not separate. To speak of the church's mission is to speak of what Christ is doing. And to speak of what Christ is doing now is to speak of what the church ought to be doing. So, so while Christ has come to earth and lived and died and raised and now is ascended, we should not think that that has ended his ministry. His ministry is in what theologians call just a, a different session now. He had his earthly session, now he has his heavenly session. He is still ministering, and we see this from verses uh, 8 through to 11 tonight. That as he, he, he takes up this, this Psalm 68, which is the passage of, of a divine warrior, militant God passage, he, he takes that passage and applies it to Christ. So he says here, that Christ gives gifts to his church. Therefore, it says, you know, he says, that's why Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 shows to us the, the right and true and biblical reality that we have and we serve the only true God who is a militant God. He is not a deistic God who has created the world, wound it up, and then stood back, and he'll just watch what happens. He is a God to whom this world is a canvas. It is the, it is the stage. His church is the players. The angels and spiritual realms are the, are the, are the observers. God is bringing the universe and the, his, and the history of the universe to a particular goal and end point. And Psalm 68 shows us this, this picture of God as, as, as a warrior, divine warrior. You read it. It was called to worship. It's, it's as if God comes down and responds to his people praying. He gets on his divine horse. He rides down with the cavalry of heaven. Smoke is around him, thick fire. He, he parts the clouds. He arrives in eruption. He slays his enemy. He sends some kings running 
running. Others he captures and takes away their weapons and puts them in chains and fish hooks around their noses. Others he, he goes to their lands and he steals their things and takes the plundering and he makes their young men his own slaves. He does this wonderful divine warrior kind of, kind of victory. And then, that's only half the story, because then after having accomplished salvation, the divine warrior Yahweh then mounts his horse. And as you, you, you read about the, the procession of the king from the city gates into his palace, he goes from, from battlefield to sacred mountain to, to holy palace. And, and he takes with him all of his fighters, all of his, his army, all of his people who have been faithful in the battle and were found to be bold in the day of his glory. They come back with him and, and the shouts go up from the city gates and they throw down their cloaks and the wives and mothers throw down their fronds because their sons have come back and they're safe and the victory has been won by God. And then the, the picture goes on that the procession comes from the city gates through the city itself with celebration and the wine is flowing and everybody has their, their finest cigars and whiskeys out because the most godly people are Reformed Baptists in that way. And so they're celebrating that Christ is, or, or that God rather, is, is pictured as this king coming back to his throne. And that in his train, it says that he is leading captives captive. That behind him, in chains and being shamed and being tossed out, our tomatoes and our rotten cabbages at these men in their, in their stockades in the city square are all of the powers, the principalities, the demons and the spiritual beings that once held the world at bay and in blindness and in ignorance and in, in folly and destruction and suffering. That, that, our, that our sin and that our <coughs> the, the, the demonic realm or, or in this Psalm 68 picture, that all of the kings and the enemies from the surrounding nations, they're now here, tied up, put to shame, and God has received gifts from them by way of plunder, and now he starts to give them out to his kingdom people so that his rule can now reign in peace and victory, unabated and indisputed, and his people can enjoy the spoils of his victory. That's Psalm 68, mini little sermonette for you. Now, Paul picks that up and says, if you're reading that, and you think that's a prophecy of some future battley thing in the sky, or if you think that that's ultimately about the victory of David against the Philistines, whatever you want to fulfill that as, actually, the ultimate fulfillment is Christ. He wants you to read that passage as God the Son being the divine warrior who came to earth to, to exact his people's salvation. That, 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 and, and maybe this is, this is new, it's your first time at church or your, your first th way of considering uh, the gospel in real ways. I don't know where you're all at, but it is good for us often and commonly to rehearse and re-remember this, this great New Testament story of God, the divine warrior, winning for us our salvation. And it goes like this. That it was God the Son, eternal in His power, equal with the Father and the Spirit in His Godhead. And that it was Him who, who was prophesied about and promised through all the pages of the Old Testament. That hundreds of years prior, the, the place of his birth, the place of his childhood, where he would flee under political oppression, how he would be raised up, how he would die, what people would be against him, how much his betrayer would be paid in silver, exactly the precise ways that he would and would not suffer on the cross before the cross was invented. All of these things was, were, was promised and prophesied before his coming, such that when he came into the world, the clock had struck midnight. 
God had come in the person of Jesus, but he had, he had not come in the glorious shining power that you would think he came as a baby, that he was born to rural, poor when they were in, when when they, she got pregnant, they were unmarried. They were just engaged. They were they were married quickly. Mo, uh, uh, Joseph and Mary, and that they, they 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 he was born in in Bethlehem and then was raised in Nazareth. And he took on his father's job. He was a he was a chippy like all the best men are. Amen. Two of you care. The, re- <coughs> the rest of you have worked with chippies, so you don't, <laughs> no way meaning that. Jesus was the one fair working chippy. That's what I'll say. No, no, Jesus was, he was a working man. He was a carpenter, blue collar guy. And, and between his young childhood and his adult years, we know almost nothing. But we know this, that, that when he came to his adulthood and he was baptized, it was time to stop being Jesus, the local carpenter. It was time to stop being Jesus, the son of Mary. It was time to stop being Jesus, the son of James and the others. He was now King, God, and Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, who is now going to start fulfilling the majestic and glorious promises that God had made about salvation. And so he went about and he taught. And he taught people what the words of God truly meant. And he showed people by his example what what a righteous life would be. And at some point in his raising, in his growing up, between being born and being baptized, at some point he clicked and he knew that he was the Messiah. At some point he's reading and he knows himself to be perfect and he's reading the passages and goes, well, this makes perfect sense. I'm God in flesh and things start clicking and making sense such that when he's an adult, he's he's aware of that. He's perfect. He's teaching perfectly, living perfectly, obeying the law for us instead of us because we couldn't. And then, of course, as the undefiled, unblemished lamb of God, he went in that way to 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 the presence, it were, of God so as to take our sins onto his own shoulders on the cross of Calvary to take our sins onto him, to take our condemnation into himself so that under the wrath of God he could suffer so that he could do away with our sin. Under the punishment of God that we deserved, he would die so that he could pay for the punishment our sins deserved. But instead of staying dead and perpetually paying for sin, he had, he had the God value in his person. He had, he had God's life in his, in his blood. And so by the one act of death, he was able to fully and finally pay every single sinner's death that would ever trust in him. So that what happened was the reversal of death, the great explosion of death, the resurrection from Jesus up from the dead. So that that he was alive and seen and glorious, even with the holes still in his hands and side. And in that powerful resurrected body, he was ascended up to heaven and he sat down on the throne. And what all of this is a picture of is God, the divine warrior in Jesus, stepping into our world, seeing sin, death, our enemies and the devil across the battlefield, taking them on one by one and demolishing all of them. And in his resurrection, killing death itself and driving the final final nail through its head such that it will be dying until the time that he comes again in his final wiping out. But there is an all-important section that we've missed here that, we, that I have not yet, not yet detailed, and that is what Paul talks about today, the ascension and bestowing of gifts of the great divine king, Christ, our victor. And that is that in his, not resurrection now, but in his ascension, 
as he goes up to heaven, you, you can read Psalm 24 for a, for a feel of this. It's as if he goes up to the ancient doors into heaven and, and he's knocking and he's calling and the angels are saying, who is this who, who knocks at heaven's doors? Who, who is this king of glory? And he says, open these gates, ye mighty doors, lift your heads that the king of glory may come in. And they swing it open and bursting into the heavenly city is Jesus in man's form and yet truly God with with the powers and principalities of the world behind him on a chain so that he goes and sits down on his throne so that he can rule and reign in peace and power and yes ups and downs throughout history but Jesus is reigning that's that's the message that starts out here from Paul in verses 8 through 10 Jesus is the divine warrior king who came one for us salvation rose ascended and now reigns now what did he do in his, in his procession between, between earth and heaven and his throne, between, between going through those ancient doors and sitting down on his throne, once he sat on his throne in his coronation, all of these ideas, there's something else that he did. And he did what, what Psalm 68 is interpreted here by Paul, not perfectly quoted because there seems to be a, a, a different version of the psalm that he's quoting or, or at least he's ingraining into it his own, uh, his own interpretation. But it says here in verse 8, quoting Psalm 68, that he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, having, having stripped the principalities, princes and pr- the principalities and powers, that's, that's where I'm going, having stripped them of their power, he gives to his church spiritual gifts and abilities and, and, and gifts so that we might with him rule and reign, so that we might with him and sent by him go and inhabit the world that has been won by him and there declare and proclaim and establish his authority as king. That happens through the preaching of the gospel. What this is, is a picture of the great commission that as Jesus went up, he gave gifts and a great commission to his church because he is the divine warrior king, God and savior, Jesus Christ. Look in verse 9. He said here, he ascended assuming that he also descended. This is just spiritual Newton's law. What, What goes up must have come down. If you say he's going back to heaven, it assumes that he came from heaven. And so he's simply arguing here in these brackets. The ESV has it in brackets in verse 9 and 10. He's saying, so basically Psalm 68 is about Jesus. Because you can't ascend unless you first descended. No one's allowed to go into the presence of God unless you're God. Or taken there by God. So obviously this is referring to Jesus. Verse 10 he says... He who descended is the one who ascended. The one who came down in verse 68 to win in Psalm 68 to win our salvation is the same one who went back to the Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But he also says, He is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He went up that he might fill all things. Don't Think of it this way, that the earth is God's Vietnam. That God flew in and dropped a bunch of troopers and dropped a bunch of helicopters and sent in heaps of soldiers. And given time, he realized it's a failed job. He recalls them all after many casualties, repents and regrets of ever doing this mission and leaves Vietnam to its overlords as it was so. 
That's not how God sees this world. When we see that Jesus ascends up to heaven, he's not saying, I came down, tried to build the kingdom. Hello, they didn't like it. I'm out of here. Do as you will. It is not the rejection of Jesus. It is not that Jesus is saying no. It is not that Jesus has, has left us. Rather, he's going to the only place from where he can help us. I say it like this, uh, when, I, when I started working, when I was working, but I started being a father, uh, my, my youngest used to once, he started being aware that, that dad was leaving and I couldn't, he wasn't crawling anymore, he was fast and I couldn't just zip out the back door while he was napping or something like that. When he was old enough to be able to run to the door and try and stop me from leaving or hide my bag or sit on my bag or, or do what he could, he would, he would scream and he would cry at the front door as I try and wave goodbye and I just feel like a terrible dad the, the first half of the shift is just horrible when I punch every single person and I was a nurse so that's especially especially bad to do and uh, and and, and what, I, what I told my, my wonderful wife Joy was you, you, you need to let him know you need to re-encourage him somehow like he couldn't talk well yet but he needs to know dad's going to work for him and, and so it's been my wife's uh, uh, way of raising and way of speaking to the boys that but when they're saddened, when they're brokenhearted that their dad leaves, it's not that he's going away from us, he's going away for us and he'll be back. He's not leaving us and rejecting us. He's going to work so that he can come back to us. He's not walking away from the family home. He's going to work for the family home. He's not, he's not walking out of our lives. He's walking out to go and provide for us a life. That is, that's the way children need to think and how we need to think about the rule and reign of Christ. He, he didn't go so he could get out. He went so he could fill it with us. Otherwise, we've used the example in Ephesians 1 of, of the pilot. We need to be sitting in, a, in, a, in an airplane on the taxi runway and along the aisle walks your pilot and says, Hello, ma'am, g'day, sir, I'm your pilot today, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and he walks up the front of the, 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 the plane and disappears behind a secret door. You don't get fretted and start wondering, Where'd the pilot go? Who's going to fly this thing? Oh, we need the pilot with us. <laughs> Because the pilot has gone to the only place from where he can fly this thing. He, he didn't run away from you. He didn't leave you. He went and assumes the chair, which means he's able to manage this thing and take it where it needs to be. And it's the same with Jesus. He hasn't gone ascending away from us to get out of the world, to leave us as orphans. He went to the throne so that he could send the Spirit, so that he could rule from that throne to bring to pass his purposes in the world through his church. Jesus has ascended so that he may fill all things, so that he may through his church permeate the universe, the world, through the preaching of the gospel. Look at chapter 1 in verse 19. <coughs> this, is, this is a common theme. This is a favorite theme for Paul. It comes up through and through in Ephesians. He says in chapter 1, verse 19, Halfway through, or towards the very end, he speaks of God's great might. That's the last two words of verse 19. God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominions, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put him, and he put all things under his feet. 
Do you see, he's not just saying he escaped the rules and dominions. He got above the, the principalities and powers so that they can't touch him anymore. No, he's saying he's seated above them so that they might be his footstools, that he might control them to bring history to his appointed ends through his church. That's what he's doing. He ascended to fill all things. Verse 23, sorry, verse 22 he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is in the habit of filling this world with a people for himself so that there is in every tribe, tongue, nation, and landmass, and family, and clan, a people who proclaim him, who love him, and worship him. That is what Jesus is doing right now. That's the question to ask. What should the church be doing? We should be doing whatever Jesus is doing because when your head goes in a different direction from your body, you're dead. It's a bad day. If our head Jesus is moving in one direction of filling the earth with churches that proclaim and preach his gospel and the body is doing literally anything else, we're failing to be the church. We're failing to do what we ought to be doing. <clears throat> and so we've seen the, the missio dei, the mission of God. We've seen the Missio Christos, the, the mission of Christ, and the Missio Ecclesia, the mission of the church, that God, His Son, and us are all supposed to be, in the best use of the terms, militant. How the church needs to re-engage this, re reoccupy this idea that we are to be militant, not, not bombastic and arrogant and violent, none of those, but militant. That, that the commission Christ has given to us, we own, we take seriously, we know our king is the divine warrior, and we're not even in the battle anymore. We're just following him back to our palace home, and there's some, there's some croaking enemies here and there to either kill, that's the, the spiritual enemies, or in a more gospel, uh, evangelistic way to, to pick up and throw on the cart that they might be healed and added to the kingdom. This is, this is our mission warfare. We are to be militant Christians. This is what unity depends on. It is, it is so dangerous when a church loses its mission that it has no mission, or that, that unity or love in itself becomes the mission. Mission drift is so common. I think it is the first attack that the devil sweeps into a, into a gospel-loving church. When, when, mission, when mission drift occurs, the gospel may even stay around the place. It's not that we deny the gospel, but that it just stops being the, 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 the dogmatic aim and goal that we have in all things. So, so really, the social programs and schools becomes our primary activity. The, the counseling and, and marriages or, the, or the, 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 the good humanitarian deeds or, or even the tradition and the confession of, of a dogmatic reformed theology. That becomes the mission. Tradition becomes the mission. That, that itself, all of these things are merely, or, or those who speak so much of being pilgrims and fellowship and community and let's go get, a, let's go get some land together and we'll just, a commune of sorts. That, that, all of these ideas, they're, they're drifts from the mission. The mission is to seek and save that which is lost by the proclamation of the gospel for the growing of the church in the world to the glory of God. It is none of these other things. Mission drift is in fact, I'll go even further, is in fact the number one thing that God rebuked Ephesus, this same church for in Revelation 2. When Jesus himself wrote through John and said to them, you've lost your first love. 
What he was telling them is that they have drifted from their evangelistic, revivalistic preaching of the gospel and growing of the local church. They'd lost that edge. Something else, doctrinal, the, uh, theological astutism became their mission, and they had lost the mission of missions. It is such a serious thing. But we see here in verse 11 through 14, we actually see what is, what is the gifts that God, through Christ, gave to the church. So in, in Jesus going to heaven, he gave gifts to the church. These next verses are not primarily, they are not primarily spiritual gifts. Other passages, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, speak of individual gifts that are given to Christians. This is not that. These next few verses, the five people that he mentions, are in fact gifts that God gives to the church as a whole. These are, these are what make up the, the totality of the teaching ministry of the church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, they are all teaching officers. They are not, prime, in fact, not all of them officers. He, he doesn't even mention all the officers in the church or all of the gifts. He doesn't mention administration, leadership, uh, uh, giving, generosity, uh, tongues, things. He doesn't mention any of them, nor does he even mention the deacons. Sorry, deacons. I would have mentioned the deacons. I think I'm, I'm kinder than Paul, apparently. He just leaves them square out. What's he doing? He's focusing on the teaching ministry of the church, which is itself foundational to everything else. So he starts there. He's going to list uh, the five uh, people that are gifts to the church in every age. Now, we will say this. Some of you may even be expecting this to sort of be the the structure of the sermon tonight, this is not the blueprint for every healthy local church. This is often called the five-fold ministry, and when you're in Sunday school, they give you a hand cut out, and you write all the different offices on the hand. Some of you, I can tell, have done that exercise at your, uh, at your church leadership conference. Uh, the five-fold ministry is not biblical. Uh, it is, in fact, I think, in the original Greek, really four of these uh, main things. One of them is not even a church office evangelist, and the apostles and prophets are not something that is, uh, that is as it is so spoken of in these ideas. It is not, that, and this is how they think, every local church, to be its healthiest and its most, uh, most, 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 uh, most fruitful, needs to have an apostle, that's the church planter. It needs to have a prophet, somebody who can tell the future, because it, it's helpful with things like weather and, and when rent's coming up, apparently. Uh, and we all need an evangelist, somebody who can go and tell people about our apostle, maybe mention Jesus. And then also we need pastors who do the shepherding, and we need teachers who do the doctrinal teaching. And, and so if you want a healthy church, you need each of these five offices. It's just not how Paul is presenting this at all. He's talking, rather, of the structure of the universal, timeless church, how God has gifted different people to it as a whole. We all, we'll start with apostles, all of us, every generation of church, every church in every land only has the same set of apostles. The 12 apostles minus Judas, plus Matthias, plus Paul, 13 in all, I guess, those 13 apostles are the only true capital A apostles that any church that is biblical can actually have. <coughs> to be an apostle in the New Testament, uh, the only people referred to as an apostle were those tight, that, that tight group of men 
or people who were in ministry with them, alongside them. But even that apostleship was, was simply derivative. Without the true apostles, they, the others would not have been considered so. <clears throat> the apostles were, were gifted to the church to lay the foundation of the church doctrinally and historically for all time. It was their job to, to speak authoritatively to the doctrine of what the New Testament church will now believe and to go into the Roman Empire and beyond and lay the foundation of the church with their teaching and their blood, structuring and building and planting churches all over the empire so that there would be a foundation, the first ever foundation of the church, which was a new structure of God. That, that was the job of the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, we, we can see that the apostles knew what it took to be an apostle. When Judas hung himself, they sought to replace him. And how they, the, the, the prerequisites that they consider to think about who can be an apostle is instructive for us today to know that no one can be an apostle ever again. They say, we need to find somebody who is with us through the teaching of Jesus. Receive teaching from Jesus' own mouth. Secondly, we need somebody who has seen and touched the living, resurrected Jesus, because if they haven't seen it, what are they giving witness to? And thirdly, we need somebody who has been chosen personally, by name, by Jesus. That's the three requirements. So, so they go about it and they say, all right, here's some men who, have been, who have, were with us, who were taught by Jesus. Here's some men who saw and touched Jesus. And then they put them forward and say, all right, Jesus, now you choose. And they throw the dice. So that it was very evident these men aren't voted on. Apostles can't be chosen of men. They are literally, by definition, chosen of Jesus. That's why my favorite line, when I meet Apostle Joseph of Kingdom Life City Church Council, whatever the heck he calls himself, my first question is always, wow, how old are you? You look so young for somebody who is at least 2,000 years old. Because you, if you're an apostle, of course, I mean, you know the requirements of being an apostle. It's on, your, it's on your gold flashy name tag and on your Mercedes number plate. You are an apostle. You know you had to be around during his ministry. You know you had to see him personally. And I know that he didn't come down from heaven and show himself to you because Paul said he was the last one Jesus ever did that for. So you were around in Israel in the zero BCs. How extremely interesting. And of course, it's not the case, but <laughs> these guys don't. Asked to be held to biblical standards. That's why they call themselves apostles. They get to make up their own. No, there are no modern day apostles. What Jesus is saying through Paul here is I gave apostles to the church to lay the foundation of teaching and church. And then he goes to his next one, apostles. Sorry, apostles then prophets. Now prophets here is not primarily the gift of prophecy which is ongoing that, that he speaks of in 1 Corinthians 14, where it's the spontaneous and, and, the, and the gifting of the Holy Spirit to give a word or a direction or an encouragement, consolation, and, 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 uh, and rebuke sometimes, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3. It's not that kind of gift. This is the kind of prophetic office that was tied very closely to the apostles. He mentioned it back in chapter 2 verse 19, the apostles and prophets who are the foundation of the church. He mentioned it in Ephesians 3 verse 5 where he speaks of the apostles and prophets who 
revealed the mystery of the church being Jew and Gentile, and now he's mentioning them together again. The apostles were the authority of Jesus to bear witness to his truth and to lay the foundation of the church, and it was the, the prophets along with them who, while they also foresaw events and they prophesied things about people, and that happened, and I believe on goes here and there, but the primary way that Paul is saying is that they were a teaching gift to the church because their job was to hear additional mysteries, run it by the apostles, and speak out to the church what God was now revealing to us for the first time in history ever. And where is it that we find the composite teaching of the apostles and prophets? It's our New Testament. That, that's literally what our New Testament is. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1. Here's a deposit of our teachings from the apostles and prophets. You have a more sure word. No prophecy ever went awry that God spoke through his people carried on by the Spirit. That, that's what your New Testament is. So we all have the apostles in some degree. The apostles and prophets are still living and active in our church today. Does your church have prophets? You betcha. They're written down. You guys have apostles in your church? You betcha. There's Vic, and then we have the, the, the rest of it written down right here. That's, that's how hope works. And, and, and so he said, these guys are gifts to the church for teaching. Consider them that way. God has gifted you with truth revealed from heaven, from his throne. What a wondrous thing to consider. And then he moves on and says, the evangelists. The evangelists were simply those men who were, who, I mean, uh, who were going around in the early church days and to today even, were the, preaching the gospel to the unsaved people that they might be added to the church. The apostles and church planters were usually going to start churches. It was the evangelists who were more spoken of those who would go out from churches and bring people into existing churches. We, we praise God for evangelists in our own midst and we pray that more and more would come. And, and before your excuse goes up, and I, I'd love to and I would, I promise, but I don't actually have the gift of evangelism. Good news for you, this passage speaks nothing of you having the gift of evangelism. It speaks of your church being gifted with an evangelist. Everybody's going to say, I just don't have the gift of being rejected a thousand times in a row and still having the joy of the Lord. I don't have the gift of being spat at or having stuff thrown at me. I don't have the gift of being called a bigot and an idiot and all of these other things that they throw. That's not my gifting. Of course, we'll all want to say that. Good news, it's nobody's gifting. It's all about calling. It's the encouragement for every one of us to consider, how might I be an evangelist in my church? And, of course, opportunity and natural gifting and spiritual gifting will make others better or more fruitful than others. But all of us should see it as an important role to fulfill. And, uh, and then, of course, there is the, uh, the, the pastors and the teachers. The apostles and prophets are a gift to the church to give us the New Testament. The evangelists are a gift to the church because they bring unsaved people into our midst or bring newly saved people from the streets, from the Bible studies, from the, from the conversations at work into our midst. And what a wonderful, beautiful thing it is for a church to have, to have the newborn spiritual babes in our midst. That's the, the language for newly spiritually born again Christians. We, we love that. That is a healthy thing for a church. And then the last two which I've argued are actually one in the, in the Greek construction. It's, it's uh, if I was to say to you, uh, my name's Tarman, and, and here with me I have my, my wife and queen, Joy. You wouldn't look for my wife, Joy, and then wonder who the queen is. You know that in my language I meant two things, one person. And I think that's what's going on with the Greek here. The, the pastors and teachers, he actually doesn't say, 
In the rest of them, he said, the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, the pastors and teachers. See, it's different. It's not quite, quite so distinct. In the New Testament, this is simply referring to the, the leaders, the official leaders in a local church. The three words that all throughout the New Testament, you put them all together, the people that lead the local church with this one office, we call them elders, senior teaching elder is usually called pastor culturally in, in our context, but, but, but the, that, that office that we call elder is otherwise called overseer, coming from the word, the Greek word uh, episkopos, and, uh, and the other word uh, is, is, um, uh, is, uh, is, sorry, is elders, which comes from the word presbyteros. So we have presbyteros, elders, episkopos, overseers, and the language of, uh, of, of pastors being the word that simply means shepherd. These three words are interrelated in multiple passages. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the elders together, and tells them, watch over the flock, that's pastor language, over which the Spirit made you overseers. So elders, pastor, because you're overseers. Or in 1 Peter 5, he says to them, to the elders among you, pastor the flock, exercising oversight. He says, hey elders, pastor as overseers. These really are one office in the local church, but the pastor and the, uh, and the teacher words that we see here in Ephesians 4 are referring rather to, to the primary roles that they undertake. In the, in the local church, we have an ongoing office whose, whose main job in leadership it is to be informing the church, teaching the church, the church, doctrinally building up the church so that we are able to do as the next few verses show us. That's the, that's, that's the, the, the gifts that Jesus gives to his church are the teaching ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers who are pastors. But look at the great effect that this is meant to have in the church. In verse 12, he basically says that the job of these pastors and teachers in line with the evangelists and the apostles and prophets their job is to equip the saints to build up Christ's body, the church. Equip the saints so they can build up the body of Christ, which is his church. The way that Paul says it here in verse 12 is, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To the pastors and the teachers, do, do they do their own work? Yes. You could have been quicker with the answer back there. Do they do their own work? Yeah, of course. I can't say I can't love my neighbor, can't give you any money, can't give you any help. I'm a pastor, so I teach other people to do that. That would be convenient, but not the fact. We, we do our own work of the ministry, yes, but the primary work that pastors do is the equipping of the saints to do the ministry. But it goes on that the ministry that the saints are to do is the building up of Christ in verse 12, but in verse 13, we have the idea that there is to be widespread unity and maturity around our beliefs. The way Paul says it is, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The pastors are laboring that you are all doing the work so that we have a unity, a widespread unity and maturity around our beliefs. We're a good, well-taught unified church that believes largely the same things. We, we have our, our nuances and our quirks here and there, but we are mainly a unified people around the word of God. And what the rest of verse 13 says is that we should have a Christ-like character in our behavior and in our service to each other. Verse 13 
to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that, that we should be maturing up into being like Jesus. I would point out that at this point, he does not speak of each of us being mature, then hopefully finding a church. He says that we all need to be benefited in the church and growing so that we can all be corporate mature. In other words, it's impossible to be a mature Christian outside of meaningful uh, engagement and membership in and attentiveness to and, and attendance in a local church. You, you cannot be, if Ephesians 4 is true, I go on the side that it is, that you cannot be in the fullness of maturity outside of the corporate definition of maturity. I, I, met, I met a guy one time, and he, he started to come, and, and I, I was just giving a teaching series on the local church and unity, and I, I, I said some line like, you cannot be mature. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not in a local church for an avoidable extended period of time. Those are my words. Avoidable extended period of time who is mature. And he said, well, actually, I, I was, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a long story, but I've spent a couple of years outside of a local church. Okay. And he goes, and I think of myself as mature. That's because you're immature. That's how this works. Did he like it? No. Why? Because he was immature. That's how he it didn't last very long. And, and off he goes. It's just no definite. Now, I know we'll all say, well, actually, I've had seasons. Or actually, I know somebody. Or, or you should meet my... No, I, I don't care. The Bible is the Bible. There is no maturity. There is no genuine maturity. Get plugged into a church. Then we will we'll be able to start calling you mature in time. But, but, but this is, it is not justification by church membership. This is maturity by the way the Bible defines maturity. Which is, which is like an organ in a body. You cannot call a liver on the, on the operating table sitting on its own healthy. Impossible. Not healthy. Its health comes from its interconnectedness with the other organs inside its designed corporate body. So the body is corporate. The body is manhood. The whole body growing up, not individual organs. Verse thir- uh, 14 brings the idea that we have stability, firmness, and steadfastness against error. Look at verse 14. So that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's, it's, the, it's the sign of the immature church that is constantly flipping and flopping from this doctrinal thing to another. It's, it's, it's the child that has zero discernment about what goes into their mouth. Right, tax, batteries, hairpins, rat poison, uh, this is experience now, uh, a glass, a cigarette that was underneath the table at a cafe, uh, a, a, a needle, a, a, a medicine, uh, I'll stop saying because you'll call somebody and have my kids taken away, but this, this is common, you have your own kids, you realize your house can be spotless, like, I don't think my wife doesn't do the sweeping, you sweep, it's pristine, and they just go somewhere and they come out with a rotting apple core. And I bought apples for four weeks. Where was that thing? They, they come out with, the, with part of the birthday cake from six months ago that they had under their pillow in a little case, and they'll just eat anything. And, and it is the, 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 the immaturity or the, the lack of discernment of the, young, of the immature Christian that simply finds something. Oh, no, he said he was an apostle. I'll eat his teaching. I don't know. It was the next thing that scrolled on YouTube. It said church in the name. I'll swallow that teaching. I don't know. He said he was reformed. I'll believe whatever the heck he says. I don't know. He's a pastor. He said some good stuff over here. I'll believe whatever it is that he teaches me. And we're undiscerning and in extreme danger, being tossed to and fro like a leaf in the wind or like a leaf on the waves of the ocean. And Paul is saying, 
this here, what we have, the, the teaching going to the people, then you, you're rubbing up against one another, the challenging of one another, the working together, the, the seeking the lost, the serving each other, the finding ways to upbuild the downtrodden and the, and the poor. The way that you do that is, it is the, the, in, the, in your doing that, you are building one another up so that you have a, have a ballast, have a security and a, and, and a, and a, a sturdiness to you like the, like the ballast of a ship. The ship is just all wind, all sails, it will topple. They, they have what they call the ballast, which is like a gravelly, cementy type material that they pour these masses of into the old wooden sail ships so that it sinks in the water. Not sinks so as to drown, as too much doctrine and not enough working can do in churches. You know what all of the footnotes say, and you don't know how to speak to somebody without them being weirded out. You know exactly what Calvin's position on this weird controversy was about how many hairs John Owen had, but you don't know how to help your neighbor or visit the widow. Churches like that have far too much ballast and they sink mission over. Churches without ballast of doctrine and understanding and, 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 and robustness in their, in their belief together with a common confession are like churches with no ballast. They're, they're simply floating on top of the water, one blow from the breeze, and they will topple mission over. We need the ballast of solid doctrinal growth and maturity in our midst with a mission to win and save the lost for the Lord Jesus Christ as he did our divine warrior and then we're a ship that is catching up some speed. So rather, what, so what we've seen here is that Jesus gave gifts to his church because the church is how Jesus changes the world and fulfills his mission. We've seen secondly that you need the church because the church and the church alone is where Jesus gifts the teaching officers to grow you and bless you. And then thirdly, we're seeing here in verse 15 and 16 that the church needs you because you have a gift that is needed in her midst. Look at verse 15. Rather, rather than deceitful schemes taking you away, we confess the truth in love. The ESV says, speaking the truth in love, but that rendering makes it sound like you speak true things nicely to each other. Love is not a tone in the New Testament. It's not a tone. It doesn't feel loving. That, that will be one application, but that's not what he's meaning. In fact, the better rendering, the, the, the commentators say, is confessing the truth in love. It's again speaking to the doctrinal unity we have together. We read the creeds and we amen it. We, we read through the confession and we find unity around these teachings. We, we read the doctrines of Paul and together we say, Amen, may God bless this to us. We believe this. This is eternal, unchanging, immutable truth. We're speaking the truth in love. We're confessing the truth in love. There are some churches or there are tendencies for churches in our tribe, reformed kind of people, and we need to fight the temptation to be those who confess the truth, full stop. Not in love, no, not in the context of loving others and loving God, not in, the, not in the context of a loving community, we just confess the truth or get out. And so your confession or whether you can catechize, that, that really becomes the hurdle to get in the church. Do you do family worship? Oh, there's a church where we do that, you can find another. What is the chief end of man? Oh, and then they swear at you in Presbyterian. Or, or, or what is your only comfort in life and death? Oh, you can't answer that? And you get cursed out and double Dutch reformed, whatever it is. And, and so it's the hurdle that's kind of like a secret code. If you believe like us, you can get in. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love is supposed to be an invitational community saying to others, there's a broader vision of God that you can have come and delight in it. There's a, there's a more powerful view of the gospel that you ought to rejoice in. Come and learn it. There's, a, there's an all-encompassing worldview, lifestyle, Christianity that God is commanding that we have with every ounce of, of our mind and every second of our day. Come into the discipleship of this church and be changed, friends. That's what confessing the truth in love looks like. It's, it's not a hurdle to get in. It's a banner of invitation that we train up one another. Speaking or confessing the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, the guy doesn't know how to use commas and full stops. The entire passage tonight is two very long sentences. Paul is saying that your church, just like any body, needs each part. You play a part. Confessing the truth together, every ligament, every muscle, every, every little capillary, every taste bud, every organ, seen or unseen, is important for the working of the church. Now, some of you will say, well, I'll get busy. Which body part am I? I, I don't know. And you know what? Maybe you're the vagus nerve that no one sees and makes you gag. Can't tell you. I don't know. Maybe you're, the, maybe you're the this or the that that gets zero recognition, but we're glad we got it, all right? Maybe you're the part that is front and center, but when the church gets punched, it's always the eye that's going black. I don't know. Maybe, it's a, maybe you're the tongue and you're very helpful, but whenever the church has said something that he shouldn't during a sermon, but we all take blame for that, it's the tongue that gets in trouble. You see, there's all sorts of things that you might be this and you might be, and I have zero clue as to what different, inter, different people may be prophetically, but we can assess and we can look and we can, we can think, but that's even the wrong question. The question isn't, well, which part am I? The the question is, how can I get busy in Jesus' mission, serving the church and winning the lost? And as you do, who's the head of the body? Jesus. If he finds a hand acting like an ear, what's he going to do with the hand? He'll put it back in its place. If he finds an eyeball trying to be a big toe, what's he going to do with the eyeball? Put it back where it belongs. If If you're an evangelist and you're trying to cook... Jesus will tell you where you need to be, okay? If you're a, if you're a singer and, 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 and you're trying to clean, Jesus will teach you where you need to be. If, if you're a cleaner and you're trying to sing, Jesus will teach you where you need to be. It's just if, you, if, if you're a cleaner and you're trying to preach and that's not God's gifting, he'll tell you where you need to be. But, but this is how we, we may go, I've never thought myself a teacher, but, but here I am evangelizing and people are coming to faith. I, I may never have thought of myself as a, as a pastor and a shepherd and a, and a ruling kind of elder, and yet, and yet here are these people considering me as, as a shepherd to their souls. I, I never thought of myself as an encourager, but look at all these people just feeling happy around me. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. And so you just get involved in the local body, the church, and Jesus will find where you need to be. You don't need to know what body part you are first. You get active and you will be used. These are, these are the realities. Jesus gives his church, gifts his church because it is his mission in the world. Jesus' church is what you need because only in it is where the maturing gifts are given. And thirdly, we've seen that the church needs you because you have something given to you that is given for the church. And so go back to verse 7, our opening verse tonight. Grace was given to each one of us. In the Greek, it could read 
grace was graced to each one of us, or, or a gift was given to each one of us. The, the, the Greek word of grace is the, is the word for gift. He, was, he gave us a portion of his grace as king ascending, as Jesus on the throne. He gave you something. You don't need to wait for a pastoral prayer or a conference or an experience or a course for you to know that you have a gift. You don't have to know what it is, but know this. If by faith in Jesus you have been connected to him, you have giftings to grow the church. They may grow or or change in and out of different seasons of your life, but you have a gift. The question is, have you recognized it's not a gift for you, it's a gift for the church, and are you willing to get busy? Are you willing to change the schedule and put in the sacrifices so that you can join the mission and be there faithfully and regularly and dependably so that you can serve Jesus through his institution, his temple, his people, his kingdom, that is the local church in the world? Jesus is growing the church. We see this in 15 to 16. It's a triunity of, of angles. Jesus is the one growing his church as a head grows the body, and yet it's the church that is growing you and it is you who is growing the body. Where we see these things known and believed together, that is where we'll be a healthy church. And that is what Paul is calling us into tonight. But there are some, there are some to whom you, you are not yet gifted, you are not yet able to be affirmed as a Christian in this body because you are out of the head. You are outside of Jesus Christ. As, as we remember, Jesus is the one who vanquished the enemies and then went and took his throne. You are not yet part of the people in his kingdom. You are not yet saved by his warrior divine power. You are still an enemy of that God. You are still an enemy of that judge. You are still an enemy that will be either vanquished and forced to confess his lordship or yet while you live there is time that you might bend the knee and believe his lordship now and be saved that's that's the call of the gospel come and meet Jesus while he is a savior and offering mercy so that you do not have to meet him as judge who punishes you for your sins this is the call of the gospel be forgiven be gifted be added to the church be brought into God's kingdom let's pray Father God, we thank you for your grace permeated throughout this entire passage is the reality of grace upon grace upon grace because it would have been gracious enough to just leave us annihilated, dead after death so that, so that we're not punished. That would have been such a grace. How, how much of a powerful grace we would, we would be thanking you for if you just added us to the foothills of heaven and never in, interacted with us. But, but to be your ambassadors to be your missionaries, to be your army, to be your kingdom people that you join like a, like a king joins a people in the ranks and fights with us. God, this, to be able to have the privilege of carrying your flag, the privilege of building your palace, the privilege of you and, and fighting and being deployed under your banner, that, Lord God, is a grace upon grace upon grace. And we know that there is a day coming when every worry, every stress, every curse, and every sin will be away from us and will be with you in heaven. Let us, Lord, look forward to that retirement. Let us look forward to that peace and that that quietness and that serenity then. But until then, Lord God, until then, would would we arrange our life around the Sabbath so that we can be recharged each Sunday and serving hard with every ounce in our souls? Would you enable us to remember that we are to be militant, loving, 
gender with one another, serving others as we would want to be served, and yet all of this in the context of loving militancy, for our Christ is the King. The Savior is the Lord, and He has sent us by His love and His sovereignty to seek and save the lost. Would you build us up with that vision, and would you send us out with that zeal? Father God, those who are outside of you and are still enemies, and Lord, only you know their hearts tonight. Would you speak to them a bold word, a confronting word, a rebuking word for their sin, that they would be, that they would be pushed, that they would be unable to walk away, but will be placing their faith in Jesus Christ even right now, that they will be walking away in their mind, leaving behind their life of sin and clinging to Jesus Christ who died for them as their great warrior, king and savior. Father God, would you do this in our midst for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.